when film criticism is as provocative as ever, Feelin' Film ventures to change the discussion from what we hate about a film to what we love about it. We judge more on emotional experience than technical merit, because every movie makes us feel something. Rorschach's Journal, September 29, 2017. Three men try to tackle a film so epic, there had to be three versions made. Listeners and fanboys alike will listen to us and shout, entertain us, and we will whisper, no, at least until next time. (laughs) And uh, with that terrible impression out of the way, (laughs) we'd like to welcome you to this month's donor pick of the Feelin' Film Podcast. Thanks to our faithful Patreon supporters. Tonight, we, uh, we talk Watchmen, Zack Snyder's 2009 cinematic adaptation of the 1980s comic written by Alan Moore with uh, illustrations by Dave Gibbons. Uh, with me on this minisode is my best friend, Aaron. Hello. But wait, there is more. We also have the pleasure of having that guy named John from the About to Review podcast. Welcome to the show, John. Thank you so much. Uh, it is a pleasure being on here. I definitely am looking forward to jumping into this massive comic book that I have read cover to cover multiple times. Uh, I have only seen the movie beginning to end uh, a couple, mainly because they came out with a new version every six months for a while. <laughs> That's right. It's like it's like the dune of, of, of movies now. You know, it's just like, <laughs> let's see what we can do to add on or add to. That's funny. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, before we get into our review, uh, John, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Um, I know you're a podcaster, but uh, tell us more about that, um, how you got into movies and reviewing and all that good stuff. Absolutely. Uh, so I have been doing this podcast of mine called About to Review and then a side project called About to Interview because I love brand synergy. Uh, I've been doing that for a little over a year. And yeah, just it kind of combines my passion for film, my passion for conversation and dialogue. Uh, And I have been doing movie reviews and having these types of conversations most of my adult life. So it was finally after years of talking to my friends after screenings or after movies. And I was like, man, I really want to do this thing. And I always listen to podcasts every day. And a good friend of mine, Tim, who I've known for years, he was like, "Okay, so do it. And I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. So I had this idea and he was like, okay, so do it. So I just finally was like, all right, I got to get all my equipment, did all that, and then just hit the ground running. And it has been a blast. So I've been a comic book fan my entire life, movie lover my entire life. My parents would have movie nights at our place. So we would have people over. So yeah, just it combines all of my passions, which is pretty amazing. That is so cool. I love when a plan comes together, especially mm-hmm. when it involves passions that we have. I know that that's kind of how uh, how Feelin' Film started. Two guys that wanted to defend movies that were getting trashed, and it turned into right. let's talk about the emotional takeaways. And uh, it's been a great journey for us. And I and I'm, I'm it's so cool to hear, at least in part, a similar story from from you. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was I was thinking the same thing because there's been many a time when I've come up with things. In fact, we were talking about this just offline before we started tonight and how I, I come up with all these ideas and Patrick's like, well, just, just do it, you know, just do it. And he's right. He's my encourager <laughs> much in the way that Tim was for you. And so, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that, that he pushed us to, to go ahead and get this done. And, and I'm glad that your show exists too. I, I try to promote it as much as I can uh, because it is, it's great. And I love that what you do is almost exclusively you're co- you're generally covering newer films uh, mm-hmm. each and every week, and so that's something that we don't have the opportunity to do. And so it's nice to have somebody, especially from our area here in Seattle, that is able Absolutely. to do that and put that content out. My biggest thing is, I'm a firm believer that everybody needs to have a creative outlet. So be it painting, writing, whatever it is, find that release, find that thing that makes you happy, and just do it. Find a way to do it. I mean. We're in the digital age of media where podcasting is the Wild West. You can have a podcast about anything you want. You can have a podcast about other podcasts. You can do whatever you want. You can record it on your phone, put it on iTunes. Just 
the ability to create your own content and brand your own content has never been easier. So I just, I encourage everybody out there just to do it. Just try it. I love it. I would totally agree. And I do. So I'm not, anyway. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> okay. I would agree, but agreement. I do not. <laughs> I would agree. And I'm going to affirm my would-be agreement anyway. <laughs> mm-hmm. All right, so we're going to go ahead and drop into this mini-sode. This is basically our uh, our finale of Book to Movie Month officially, even though I know that we're going to be covering other books that have had movie adaptations to them. But for the official Book to Movie Month, we're finishing off with, with this, uh, I guess you would call it an epic tale. Um, it's a started out as a 12-issue maxi-series. Back in the '80s, you know, became a graphic novel, and then ultimately the uh, the the movie adaptation. So, before we get into that, just our standard spoiler warning: if you have not seen the movie, uh, I would encourage you to read the comic first. You can find it at any of your you know online retailers or your local Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or whatever your local bookstore is. But check that out. Then watch the movie. We are covering the actual director's cut. There's like three versions, theatrical directors, and then I guess I would call it the ultimate fanboy edition. Uh, so check out one of those, but we're, we're covering the, the director's cut. So you've been warned. Come back and then join the conversation with us. All right. So with that being said, comic book adaptations. We are living in the age of the superhero movie. Uh, I guess you could say it got kicked off with Iron Man, with with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. We've had a plethora of films come out. DC didn't just dip their toe in the water. They put a big, like, giant foot in the in the water with Man of Steel and then Batman v Superman and Justice League coming out. All these just, just multitudes of comic book movies. And so the first question I wanted to pose to you guys... Um, we have a question from the audience. So, <laughs> Go ahead, in, in an audio medium, you cannot see that I slightly raised my hand. Uh, <laughs> so one quick thing that because okay. I get into these conversations all the time, being a okay. big comic book nerd. Uh, so, yes, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, as we know it, was kicked off with Iron Man. But I always go back to a couple other movies that without those, we would not be where we are right now. Spawn. So the, that was actually the first one that I was going to say. No, you're oh you're oh you're serious. Oh. Yeah. So Spawn and Blade, those two okay. films, those are the first huge kind of movies. I mean, post big names like Superman and Batman, of course. Right. Where these were comic book adaptations that a lot of people did not know about. And granted, when Iron Man came out, people knew the name, people kind of knew some of the storyline, but it allowed people to get introduced to the character in a new way. But Spawn and Blade those two movies kicked off this kind of resurgence into comic book movies. And then you had Spider-Man in 2001 that really kind of opened the door. So, there yes, okay. uh, so I am agreeing with you uh, with so. Iron Man starting in the cinematic universe. But I got to go back, you know, pay respect to those films because that was the first one where a lot of people were like, oh, what is this? So. Right. Okay. So I guess we could call this the successful superhero blockbuster, beginning with those those French those properties. And right. yes, I, I don't know why I forgot about Sam Raimi's Spider Man. So mm-hmm. anybody out there, you can digitally slap me for because it has Tobey Maguire so. in it. The thirty-five-year-old Tobey Maguire trying to be sixteen, <laughs> like get out of here. No. Uh-uh. <laughs> guess just... I just gave away who my favorite Spider Man isn't. Right. <laughs> Zing. <laughs> That being said, we, you know, we started feeling film because of Batman v Superman and and kind of the scrutiny that it was getting as a film. But I was going to unpack this question using Watchmen as a as an example because Aaron, you you sent out a a tweet on social media and I loved kind of reading the replies on impressions of Watchmen. Why is this kind of a mixed bag of of uh, of love hate or whatever. And, and some of the, some of the responses just kind of surprised me. Some of them made me laugh. Um, and so I'm wondering, do comic book adaptations get more scrutiny than other book adaptations? Do you guys see that? Or, um, and in particular Watchmen being an example. And if so, why John, we'll start with you. What do you think? So it absolutely is a much more difficult medium to adapt for the sheer reason that, I mean, and again, as a massive comic book collector, 
when you are looking at a comic book, unlike a regular story when you can, you know, picture these things, you can start to imagine what they would sound like. When you are reading a comic book, you have the script and the storyboard right in front of you. And any time you divert from that, you're going to get some heat. And so, and the other difference is when you are reading it, if you're reading Voltron or Dr. Doom, you know, his lines are different. The way his dialogue is written has a different font. So you can already start to interpret that in a different way, as opposed to a regular book where you are able to interject all of your own mentality into it and your own vision. So with the visual medium like comic books, it is absolutely more difficult because that scrutiny of, hey, guys, you had the script and storyboard, and yet you came up with this. Be that good or bad, that makes it really challenging. That's for sure. Aaron, what about you? I would agree completely with what John is saying and that I think when you couple that with the way in which geek culture, and I don't say that derogatorily at all, um, but mm-hmm. when geek culture in general handles fandom, um, it is it is a way in which we tend to latch on to our favorite things and defend them to the fiery death and expect them to be perfect going forward. I mean, and and the thing is that this can happen just within the comic book genre. You know, if one miniseries comes out that's perfect, everything after that's going to be held to that standard by that that character's fans or that company's fans. And so yeah. I do think that because of the nature of defense of geek type things being it and, and I think comic books fall into this, I think any other major fandom falls into this, whether it's Lord of the Rings or Star Wars or Star Trek. But I think those things do fall under more scrutiny because we're more passionate about them. I'll, I'll use as an example. I think Gone Girl is a five-star book. I loved the book. It was incredible to me. Blown away by it. Had lots of conversations about it when I first read it. A month later, it was on to the next book, right? Next, The next thing as far as fiction novels go that's not the same way in which i approach lord of the rings or the hobbit these are things that i revisit constantly every, on, a, on, a, on an annual basis i may reread them or i may dive into more of the lore comic books are like that so when one adaptation goes poorly it stings a lot more than because you also don't know when you're going to get the next one Unless it's Fantastic Four, in which case you know that you're going mm. to get a lot more, and they're just going to progressively get worse. But, um, you know, yeah, I think for me, that's really what it has to do with, is is the, the absolute love of something and mm. being so passionate about it that you can't fathom it being done poorly. And because you all have your opinions, it's harder to see them go in a different direction. Right. And there's a there's a there's a difference between adapting a a comic book's idea or a character idea in a comic book movie and actually adapting a story, which is what Watchmen did, right? And as opposed to something like Man of Steel and Batman v Superman, whose criticisms are that's not my Superman. That's not what Superman should do or that's not what Batman should do. So these were less about that's not how the story should go and more about that's not how the characters should act. That was probably one of the bigger criticisms of those with something like Watchmen or other adaptations, particularly with the DC uh, uh, animated universe. Mm -hmm. Those are some of the more successful ones in my opinion, because I think they adapt what you were talking about, John, they adapt those storyboards a lot more accurately to the to the to the screen and i think they're enhanced by the fact that they're animated i think when you put live action to a naturally quote animated storyboard you're already creating a sense of dissonance with that so you're kind of already kind of setting yourself not up for failure but you're putting yourself at a disadvantage because now you're now your audience is saying dr manhattan doesn't look like that or comedian doesn't really he's not really that big or he's not that strong and then you get into more of nitpicky stuff like that. But I absolutely agree with both of you. I think both of what you guys are saying is is spot on. And I think for Snyder, he had that challenge going into it. Now, mm-hmm. what I've seen with 
um, using Batman v Superman as as kind of a primer for myself, and then looking at Watchmen, and you know, we joked about the different versions of this. We covered the director's cut because it added more to it. I mean, I popped this thing in, guys. This is the first time I watched it, so I'm just confessing that right now. I hadn't seen it. Wow. Before. Read the comic once. I still, I mean, I have it on my shelf over here, and I'm eventually gonna pick it up and read it again. But I've only read it once. Liked it really so much. It. Liked it so much. You bought it for me. Because you bought me yes. the comic. You bought me the graphic yes. novel. Yeah. Nice. Absolutely. Good man. Yeah. And uh, even I, at, at some point I found on eBay, I think I I, I believe they're the original 1980 uh, maxi series. I'm, I'm hoping they're not second printings. I think they are. But anyway, so I have the, quote, original comics as well, which you know makes me feel somewhat proud. But I, I popped this thing in and... and normally uh, for the show, if I don't have... If we're not seeing a theater pick, something in the theater, I try to... I try to get it in one sitting if I can, but my, my, my life is kind of, when it gets really crazy, I kind of have to piecemeal it. And I saw this thing was three hours long, and I'm going, oh my gosh, <laughs> how, how am <laughs> yeah. I going to do this, right? And I, and I admit, I had to watch it in, in parts. I had to watch it in three parts, like the first hour, second, third. Mm-hmm. And I started thinking about this, and I started thinking about the ultimate cut of Batman v Superman and how more people enjoyed that edition, and more people enjoyed this version of Watchmen than the theatrical one. The fanboys, uh, they love the 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 animated um, black uh, black oh, freighter, the, black fr- freighter, yeah. uh, black freighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did not necessarily want to have that as part of my theatrical experience, but anyway, it made me think about how. Zack Snyder seems to thrive on longer storytelling, on longer durations, not just packing a bunch of stuff in, but I feel like his strength is in longer stories and trying to keep things, not just trying to keep things within a certain time frame, but feeling like he has to say a lot or tell a lot in his story, contrasted with somebody like Neil Blomkamp, who I feel his strength is in his short form storytelling. I mean, I enjoy his films. I really enjoyed District 9. I enjoyed Elysium. And, uh, you know, Aaron and I, we enjoyed Chappie. But we found that his short films are really where he thrives. And I think Snyder's is more in that longer duration. And I, I almost wonder sometimes if Snyder were given a TV series of of something, of a, of a property of some kind, would he be just as successful? Uh, do you guys do you guys see that? Do you feel like Snyder works better long form as opposed to to shorter time frame john so when you're saying that you know he thrives on this long form storytelling i slightly disagree uh mainly because one of my one of my mottos or one of my tenements or whatever you want to call it there are two modes you're either thriving or you are surviving okay to me Zack snyder is just surviving his color palette is the same on almost everything. He does these long, drawn-out scenes. You have slow-mo fight scenes. <laughs> you have the same formula in everything. And he is a great director for a trailer. So give him three minutes. He can make you want to see anything he does. Like hard candy. Or not hard candy. Uh, Sucker Punch. Sucker Punch. So like with Sucker Punch, that trailer blew everybody's minds. And it was incredible. And then we watched the movie and we were like, uh, what? You know, so to me, when it comes to thriving, I, I really don't think he is thriving with these long form stories. He is just surviving. He is getting by on doing the same thing over and over again. But I do 100% agree that Neil Blomkamp, when he started Oat Studios, you know, his YouTube channel where he has complete creative control to do whatever he wants in these short format, 20 minute films like Raka, you know, those are incredible. So he has the ability to go between both worlds. I do not believe that Zack Snyder does. I just, I think that he gets so involved and to his credit, you can take panels of the comic book of Watchmen and the single issues and down to a picture frame in the back of the room, it is replicated in the movie. He does that exceptionally well. But that is not enough. Attention to detail does not mean attention to story. It does not mean attention to driving the audience to have an emotional reaction. It just means you are kind of OCD and you looked at a comic book panel and you're like, I want this, this, this. And you put it there. But does it make the story better? Yeah. Aaron, that, what about you? That's totally fair. Um, I, You know, as you were talking, I, I didn't really have 
an answer for this originally, but I think I, I love that you bring up how meticulous he is with his attention to detail because he does the same thing in Batman v Superman. And those are some of the things that I've defended as being the high points of the movie. Things like literal scenes that are drawn from Frank Miller's the dark Knight returns comic are exactly how the fight goes down in Batman v Superman mm-hmm. up, up until the Martha part. Right. And, yeah. but there are things that are pulled <laughs> exactly from it um, that are in the animated version of the movie. Uh, mm-hmm. And I was like, Whoa, my mind was blown. And and he does have an incredible attention to detail for that. I think, Patrick, I do agree with you in the case of Watchmen and BVS that in those two, the more the longer cuts were preferable to his shortened versions of those films. But I don't know that I would think it's necessarily a trait that he could always replicate every single movie. Three hundred is about an hour and 45 minutes and is perfect. I mean, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's not too long. If he was to expand that, I think it would be a problem. It, it, you know, I think he hits the mark really with his, his time frame in 300. Yeah. Sucker punch. I, I don't think it would be helped with, with length either because it's more about not understanding the characters <laughs> or how to portray the characters. I mean, I think, I think Zach's an incredibly smart guy. I just think that, his vision of what he thinks the public general public wants to see is different than what they actually want to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I don't, I mean, I don't think he's got characters wrong, so to speak. It's just that the way that he sees them is not necessarily what people respond to. It's what he responds to. So I don't, yeah, I don't think in general, I would say that he's better at long form storytelling, but I definitely think that in this movie, the director's cut is very superior to the theatrical. Yeah, as you guys are talking about it, it got me thinking more about because those are the only two I think of his that I've seen. I haven't seen, I've seen parts of Three Hundred, so at some point I need to see it. And then I haven't seen. Did he do Sucker? Or did he do Sin City as well? No, no. Okay, uh, Sin City was Robert Rodriguez. Right, that's right. But but it was and Sin City right was Sin City is one of those examples where in that style mm-hmm. you could do it once. Because when I looked at, when I watched Sin City, I could literally take panels of the comic book, put it up to the TV and turn pages. And it was exactly what was happening on screen. Yeah, it was incredible because it lended itself with that hyper realism, black and white. Mm-hmm. It made sense, unfortunately, with Watchmen and with BVS, but especially, I think, with Watchmen as a comic book purist. The thing that frustrated me about Watchmen this is almost exactly what happens in the book from cover to cover. But it shows that like we talked about before is those adaptations. It shows that you can do exactly the right things and it still not be this masterpiece because it just does not work as a comic book reader growing up. And still now when you read these lines, the Dr. Doom says, or the Magneto says, or any of these characters say, it makes sense in your head because it isn't a comic book world. When you hear real people saying it, you're like, hmm, kind of does not work. So it is, yeah. it is, yeah, it is tough. And you're exactly right, John. There's, there's something interesting about the translation onto screen from either a book or a comic. You know, the visuals notwithstanding in the comic, if I hear um, a character that I love, like Pony Boy Curtis, say something in The Outsiders... And then I hear C. Thomas Howell say it on screen. There's a disconnect for me mm-hmm. because it's not how I hear Pony Boy Curtis saying what he says. Does it make it less appealing? Well, in some ways, yes, it does. But there's a sense of nostalgia and like, oh, I love the book. And I love that's cool what they did. That interpretation was there. And so for Snyder, I think what where his I think where where he where his challenge is is kind of fighting two worlds. So Batman v Superman was what I would consider, and even Man of Steel were original stories. These were, I mean, you had elements of origin stories and things like that, but he's, he, I can, I, I, I'd like to think we can all agree that he's telling a massive story with Man of Steel, BVS, and then Justice League. Um, in a sense, maybe, and this could be a conversation for another day, 
Superman's part one, two, and three, <laughs> because because yep. he because he comes and and to an extent, I really am intrigued by that. With Watchmen, he's got the script, like it's there. And you guys mentioned that what he does well visually is duplicate panels, but that's almost to a detriment because of the mm-hmm. fact that when you wa- when you see images on panels, when you see cuts and when you see full page spreads, you're translating that visually. I mean, you might be seeing something happening, but there's a lot going on in a still that you're translating with your brain saying, okay, you know, Cyclops is firing off his beams at this person, but you're actually kind of connecting the dots of what's happening in between, even though you're getting a still. And so when I look at Watchmen and I look at the visuals that Zack Snyder puts into it, I wonder for those that really, really enjoy the movie, is the strength really in the story versus the actual property? Because Watchmen is a popular book. I mean, nobody can question that. And and I was sad that Alan Moore didn't, for, for his reasons, decided he didn't want his name put on this. You know, it was weird to see the credits roll. And it's and I see, based on the comment by Dave Gibbons, I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. And so I did my mm-hmm. research and found out why. And and then I, I remember when the, because I was really big into comics during the New 52. And then when before Watchmen came out, I remember, <laughs> I remember uh, Alan was like, no, I don't even want a part of this. But it, it really kind of raises the question on why is it so popular? Is it because it's edgy? Is it because Watchmen's a different kind of superhero movie? Um, is it, does it feel like a refreshed story rather than something that's been rehashed? Um what do you guys think, John? What do you think? So, Aaron, did you have something to say? No, you can go ahead. Jump in. Okay. I was, I was like, I saw another hand. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we cannot talk about the this movie and these movies in particular kind of without that Alan Moore uh, angle because he is the creator of, of these, of multiple movies that he has wanted nothing to do with. <laughs> I mean, true. from hell. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. A lot of these projects, actually all of them, he completely stepped away from because he was like, I did not write these to be translated to a different medium. And so what he did that was a genius thing. So when these comics came out in 1986, uh, he took some characters from a previous company called Charlton Comics, which was, I mean, from 1946 to I think 85, 86, something like that took a bunch of those characters and he told DC because he was working for them at the time. He was like, all right, I want to do a new story, but with these characters. And they're like, mm, no, but what you can do is create some other ones. So he was like, all right, let me take these old characters and do pretty much exactly the same thing, but rename them and give them slightly different color schemes and make my own thing. So that was just a really smart move and because of that because he owned these ideas and you know these concepts when all these things started coming about about making this movie and he was like no like that that is not why i did it and you talked about the new 52 and the before watchmen they came to him first uh they were like all right you did this this is your baby help us (laughs) and he was like uh why and they're like, well, we just need you to do 10 issues of this, 10 issues of this, and then you can have all of the rights back. And he was like, no. Like, I, that, like his brain, first of all, Alan Moore is a genius. He is a crazy wizard who lives in a cave, but he is a genius. Um, if, if anyone wants to do some research on Alan Moore, he is a fascinating just human in yes. general. But when it comes to these adaptations, there's a very clear reason why he wanted nothing to do with it. And I have to respect that. I absolutely respect it. Yeah, it, it it's always been just a, a crazy story to me to, to realize that he didn't want anything to do with this and it has to go on without his kind of blessing um, as opposed to, I guess, contrasted with Stan Lee, who is right there just throwing himself into the creation of the MCU. And even now, Jeff Johns throwing himself into the mix with the DCEU, trying to help keep that in line with what he wants the comic book company to and the properties to be. For me, I saw the movie before reading the graphic novel. So I would say 
that the strength is in the story because I resonated with the story and with these characters. And the reason I did so is because partially of that familiarity. I think it was a brilliant move by Moore to make them just close enough that I could be like, hey, that's kind of like Batman or, hey, that's kind of like, you know, Dr. Doom in a way. These these smart characters or you, you, you had archetypes, archetypes, essentially, of different comic book characters. Mm-hmm. And so that really helped me connect to them quicker, even though they had different names and different backstories. But their non-superhero-ness of the characters is something that I particularly really enjoy because it's hard to look at overpowered superheroes over and over and over and find differences in them. These were humans. These were fragile uh, characters that could die, you know, obviously. And so that was a big draw for me. Um, The fact that this story was written in and set in the Cold War, I think when it first came out, resonated with people deeply it was it was fears and a situation that they they lived through and so that's not about the property that's about the story in my opinion mm-hmm. and i i don't think like it's a it's a rehash or a retelling i think it is very very unique um even the way in which the story characters deal with each other one thing i really connected with this time around watching the movie I was comparing it to the Marvel version of the Mutant Registration Act and how mm-hmm. that required them to unmask themselves, right? And how how we see characters go about that in whether it's the MCU or even in the comics and the way in which the tone is handled between those characters. And I just felt like, man, Watchmen is so much more realistic to me of what it would really be like for these people. Like, I mean opening sequence in this film is is just genius going mm-hmm. i mean yes mm-hmm. it's it's fast but it kind of had to be or we would have had a six hour movie but like you know <laughs> you you go through all this history and you start to see what the after effect would really be on heroes that don't have these superpowers to fall back on you know they're mm-hmm. gonna become alcoholics they're gonna try and relive the glory days and fail some they're going to get mocked and laughed at and not know how to respond to that anymore. Um, and so I I just, the human element of this story, the groundedness of it, makes it super unique to me and is, is one reason I love it so much. Yeah, I looked at this, and Aaron, you and I have talked about this uh, in the past, that I've when we cover movies, I try to find one word that connects me with it. And I think the word that comes to mind here is honest. You know, Watchmen as a superhero story, which it's really not. I mean, these are like you mentioned, Aaron, they're just above hero, but just below superhero. They have, you know, with the exception of Dr. Manhattan, you have just regular people who are trying to do something, you know, heroic. And I too love the, the, the opening sequence because one, it was very efficient I mean, you had so much that you were telling with those opening uh, opening titles with regards to history, just visually. And I think that's I think that's phenomenal when you can when you can visually give me information without having like you know Don LaFontaine doing a voiceover or you know Rorschach doing doing his thing. You're to me that's. That's powerful visuals, and so credit to Zack Snyder for doing that, and to and to bring it into the credits. So you're being very much economical in terms of your time. But I look at these characters, and they all feel the, like in their struggles and in their pain. It's a very honest pain. So comedian's a great example. He's a guy who is very unapologetic and very honest about who he is. And so the the moment that we get him weeping, that we find out later why, is very much a payoff for me because I'm going, okay, even the guy that I would be afraid of even walking down the street on the opposite side of has heart, has, has something that can be broken just like all these other characters do in their own ways. And that's what I think is a strength of the story as a whole. But what I found really intriguing within the film is that over the course of getting these backstories told in 
what I consider creative ways, I felt empathy for each one of them at some point or another. And it's weird because I had this dichotomy of saying, I don't like some of these characters. Like I could not support what they do or who they are, but I can, at the same time, I have this incredible empathy for them because I see where they're coming from. Yeah. They're my, their actions. They're my favorite kind of characters because they're gray. They're not, they're not Mm -hmm. all good just because they have the title of superhero doesn't mean that they always make the right choice. Exactly. In fact, in, the, in any comedian's example, I mean, he's as much villain at times as he is superhero, if you really want to right. look at it. Mm-hmm. Well, he's not even an anti-hero. I mean, he's borderline no. villain. I mean, you could you pair him against Wolverine. Wolverine looks like an angel compared to him. And so I think that when you when you see the stories play out of these individual characters, there's so much honesty that is exhibited in each one of them that become very unapologetic to us as an audience which is something that is totally correct in the comic. We get that same thing from the comic. We just get it digested in a, you know, in a Snyder inspired way. And I, I thought that was a strength of the, of the film for sure. Go ahead. Anyway, I was just gonna say the other character, I mean, is obviously Ozymandias as a villain. I really enjoy him. And I think that the way he is portrayed in this film and in in this story um, is is pretty unique. His underlying reasons are again not necessarily all terrible, <laughs> but his right. methods are <laughs> in in many ways. And the the thing that I enjoyed the most in this viewing, and I, I don't know why I hadn't picked up on this before, but in there's in that final moment when he's fighting. Gosh, who's he? Who's he facing off against? I guess he's facing off against Dan, and he's saying, "I'm not a comic book villain." Oh yeah, I'm not going to explain <laughs> he, he's, my whole thing. He's sitting there explaining the whole thing, and I'm thinking to myself as he's doing it, as a viewer, I'm going, "Oh, here we go again. This is kind of boring. We're just going through the trope again of another villain that is going to just do this, and he's going to get his plot foiled." And then he says, "I'm not a comic book villain." I triggered it 35 minutes ago and I'm just like, Oh snap. <laughs> got him. <laughs> right. And I, that moment like elevates him completely mm-hmm. for yeah. me. Yeah. John, did you have something? Yeah. I mean, it just, it is those portrayals. It is that, you know, is Rorschach a villain or is he a hero who just has no gray area? You know, it really is that those types of arc, those archetypes that, you know, you mentioned before, where do you go with that? You know, and so this comic book, and it is one of the strengths strengths of the movie, is that they explored that. They let those relationships develop. Some of them were a lot more successful than others as far as character choices. But you take somebody like Comedian who, you when you see his backstory and what he did and the pleasure that he had with doing the things that he did, you immediately do not like him. And you are not supposed to like him, but mm-hmm. he is still human when he, you know, sitting on Moloch's bed and crying and Moloch, who is his enemy for decades, is sitting there like, I know what this man is capable of, <laughs> you know, and so he is just Moloch is terrified. Comedian is having this, you know, gut wrenching performance. And so it is those performances. It is the strength of those performances and that dichotomy of not really being all good or all evil and so many characters are gray, you know, and so it it adds to that level of emotion. Right. And for me, I think when you have that, you have this sense of challenging your expectations or challenging your perceptions, which is a which is a big thing. I think we've talked about on the show when we when we deal with Chris Nolan, that's one of his big things is challenging our perceptions, whether it's with time, whether it's with characters being you know who's the villain and who's the hero there's that that gray area of not knowing and leaving us with that of saying well who should i have rooted for who should i have celebrated and that's something about watchmen that i think is is interesting because the story the story ends i don't know if for me i don't know if it ended with hope i think it ended with well, that's just what happens. And, you know, life goes on. Um, and I'm trying to remember if the story ended that way. I know the ending itself, the big climax changed, but I'm trying to figure out if 
after that if if the ending sort of you know lined up with the book and the movie uh, you guys can uh, can clarify but I think I, I left my movie experience going man that was tough to digest because I'm a guy who loves to I love to champion movies that that end with a sense of hope now I'm okay with with movies that end having me question and wonder and, and, and Watchmen has the strength of doing that. But it definitely left a, a mark with me of going, man, did I watch, did I watch something that was complete or did I watch just a long kind of slice of life moment with these characters that just let me experience their demise as, as heroes. Um, and I don't know how I felt about that. I'm still kind of wrestling with of going, was it a good story? I think it was because, you know, we're we're podcasting on it. That's one reason. But also, it's it's I, I think it's a good story because I liked the comic and I enjoyed the movie for the most part. But um, I think that's the strength of it is that it kind of leaves you going, hmm, where do we go from here? Go ahead, John. Yeah, and it just so the difference between the book and the movie. You know, of course, the major difference is in the comic book and being that you guys do full spoilers and especially since the comic book came out in 1986, go and read it. <laughs> there is no excuse not to read it anyway. So the comic book ends with Ozymandias dropping or teleporting, essentially a gigantic creature. It's like an octopus monster. Yeah, like a cephalopod type creature in New York and kills half of the population. Mm-hmm. In the movie, they recognized that they could not do that. So instead, they take this Dr. Manhattan angle that was not in the books at all, and they target multiple cities across the world and you know, decimate the population globally and not just in New York City. But, again, going back to that gray area, Ozymandias wins. Not only does he win by destroying the population. And if you notice in the movie, from the construction sites, as the camera's pulling back, all of the construction vehicles and everything are Veet. So he he wins financially. He wins, uh, <laughs> I mean, metaphorically, in the sense of like his grand plan to bring the world together against a common enemy. In the comic book, it was this common enemy of aliens, of, you know, who knows what this common enemy is, but we need to get together in case another one drops down in the middle of a major city. In the movie, it takes this Dr. Manhattan angle of, okay, this guy messed up. You already had questions about him because I planted people to get cancer to plant those seeds. So now, because of him, multiple cities are destroyed. Tens of millions of people are dead. He is the bad guy. How do we come together? I mean, again, is it wrong to want world peace no is the methodology of which he acquired world peace wrong yes <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah. absolutely but i like the change frankly i i enjoy mm-hmm. the movie version of the ending better i think it flushes out dr manhattan a bit and gives him more more reason and purpose uh, as a character i love the fact that he has to then make the decision to sacrifice himself essentially mm-hmm. by leaving um you know and giving up you know, to some extent, there's a romance that he's giving up, although we know that she's kind of already given it up ahead of time. So it's not like, you know, but he's having to make that hard decision and put mm-hmm. the world ahead of him. And so he becomes a, a tragic figure, you know, the the one that it's not his fault. He he was innocent in all of this. And yet yeah. here he is kind of having to take the fall. Um, but he does so willingly for the sake of humanity. And I think that that's that's pretty amazing. Uh, especially because we get to see his change in thinking as it occurs through the beautiful visual sequence on Mars um, where mm-hmm. they have a, a big conversation and Lori really mm-hmm. gets through to him and makes him realize, listen, like you're, you're seriously like sitting here telling me that humans are ants and we don't matter. Maybe we need to rethink this. And so we get to see all of that. And so for that, I emotionally resonate with the film more than the book all the way up and through the ending. And of course with Rorschach, who is just my favorite character. I, I love Rorschach. I think, (laughs) I don't know. He's got to be in my top three, probably movie comic book characters. I just think that his portrayal is so spot on from an actor that I didn't know anything about 
gave mm-hmm. me uh, beforehand gave me a unique enough voice that I just you can you can never see that character and not hear his voice like it is ingrained in you forever and when you can so fully embody and realize a character like that then mm-hmm. you've done something special well and that, yeah. that goes back to sorry to cut you off patch uh, <laughs> it goes back to kind of what we were talking about before we're in the comic book when you read his dialogue the lines were scratchy you know that you got that feeling just from reading the character so with what jackie earl haley did in his portrayal it was absolutely perfect what i would recommend to you aaron and your listeners uh go back so the, the character that rorschach is based on from the charlton comics is the question an old school dc comics character that is still around well actually not anymore he died and Rene montoya took over but um spoiler alert i guess in the past year of comics but i encourage you to go back and read some of the question because first of all it looks exactly the same except for the ink blot face the storylines are the same his portrayal is not as violent but still as straightforward we will say so the question i mean incredible stories with that okay well rorschach is definitely a standout character for me and i figure with with you aaron it would be because he reminds you a lot of um another character that you have an affinity for at least in a voice i would personally love to (laughs) to see the I, i would love to hear um rorschach and and uh and the Dark Knight do some karaoke together. I think Christian they would Bale. be fantastic. I'm Christian really shocked. Dark- I'm Batman. <laughs> yeah, just do a little. Do uh, a little I'm not wearing an ink you know, Staying alive or whatever. I think mm-hmm. that would be fantastic. But I, you know, they were one of the characters. All the characters are, are fascinating to me. Doctor Manhattan. I think Billy, uh, Billy Crudup did a fantastic job. I, I love his voice, by the way. I, and at first, when he's telling his backstory, all I'm hearing is the MasterCard commercial. Like at some point, I'm I'm hearing him say, because that's what he, you know, that's that's the that's how I knew him as the voice of the MasterCard. You know, for everything else, there's MasterCard. And so at some point, I was kind of waiting for him to finish a sentence and say, for everything else, there's MasterCard. But it's so cool because you don't see Billy Crudup. I mean, you see Dr. Manhattan because he's blue and naked and whatever. So his acting is carried by his voice. And I think that there's a there's a lot to be said about being able to deliver a performance vocally using, you know, the the astounding visuals that we've that we've talked about to kind of support that. And I think there are maybe a couple of moments that his facial expression changes where it's emoting. One is when he is being surrounded by the, by the reporters and he goes, that's enough. And, you know, leave me alone. And he, you know, he gets really angry. And I think the other is, I think it's the moment on Mars where he, he finally realizes, Hey, you're worth it. Let's go basically save the planet. And, and so his performance vocally, along with those visual cues really help amplify him as a character, but the guy that I really connected with was was the owl, and seeing kind of how uh, his relationship with his predecessor, I thought, mm-hmm. and 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 my heart broke when you know seeing this guy just get beaten to death, yeah. and I'm him, I'm the owl, in in terms of how he is, like I'm just kind of, I, I felt the awkwardness with him. I feel like, you know, when it wasn't his relationship with, with the Silk Spectre was not, um, it wasn't just an infatuation. I mean, he genuinely loved her and cared for her. And I'm, I'm so, I'm, I'm glad that that, that resolved itself. I'm glad that they you know, got together, but his character to me, and as an extension, Rorschach and well, those two in particular, when they take their masks off, they feel different to me. So Rorschach looks sinister to me along with his voice and that yeah, moving fabric of of a face but then when you take his mask off i mean he feels like a different person and i think the same way with the owl when he puts on that that costume man he looks intimidating to me 
Mm-hmm. But you, but you get it's it's almost this equal opposite thing that happens. You get introduced to Rorschach in his mask, and that's his thing. Like, not having his mask makes him feel like a different person. I mean, he's you know he he articulates that. And the owl is the opposite of that. Where the yeah, first time we meet true. him, he's just a regular guy, and then mm-hmm. he puts on the. And so you get these two different um, impressions of these characters, and the and and the 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 not disconnect, but maybe the, the the dissonance between how they feel to you with their masks and how they feel without their mask. And I, I just, I kind of loved that. I loved getting almost four different characters based on how they looked. Nice. And and mm-hmm. getting that getting that in opposite ways when we first get introduced to them and then later on as their characters progress. So I really liked the owl in particular, but kind of in conjunction with uh, with Rorschach as well. Did you have a favorite John that you connect with the most as far as characters go? I mean, not necessarily one that I connect to the most, mainly because they were <laughs> they were so uh, out there, you know. So it was either do I resonate with Rorschach, who's a crazy sadist who has no <laughs> barriers? Not so much. Do I resonate with Doctor Manhattan, who is just out? No. So there is not really <laughs> any one particular character that I that I honed in on as, you know, my favorite or whatever. But the ensemble that they were able to put together, you know, was really solid. Um, again, like I said before, some of the interactions were better than others. Some of the characters were better than others. Some of the character choices and behaviors. Dr. Manhattan in the books is more introspective and less distant than he is in the movie. So... That was kind of a, a little bit of a shift, uh, but due to Billy Crudup's performance, especially on Mars, when at one point he is telling her, he's like, you're going to tell me to go back and you're going to tell me to do this. And then when she actually tells him that and he was like, what? And he acts surprised like in that shift of a second. That I mean, it was great performances, but no, I would not say there is one character that I resonate with the most. I did love seeing, you know, the original uh, owl, night owl in that fight scene. You know, seeing how they intercut, you know, the way he is moving, the way he is throwing a left hook with what he used to do. So uh, that was just that was great storytelling. So I liked his portrayal and his character. I think maybe a little bit more than others, but I still would not say that he is my favorite. Well, good stuff. Um, so before we finish up, I wanted to touch on a couple of things and really one thing, and that's the use of the music and the soundtrack uh, yes. from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. There is a the the credits roll and we have times they are changing and yes my friends they are changing and they and it i I love how that connects but as a whole the use of music lyrically music whatever i i didn't notice the score as much as i noticed the actual soundtrack but i thought this was a Aaron, you asked me, I think, uh, in one of our boxes, you said, uh, good soundtrack or best soundtrack. You're going to call me and I out. Said, <laughs> well, yeah, and, and my response was probably one of the most efficient uses of a soundtrack. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because yes, it I, was. Feel like, was what you said. I feel like there are, there are soundtracks out there. We've had these conversations a number of times based on different, uh, different movies that we've, we've covered. But there are times when a soundtrack as a score works to enhance a scene there are times when it works when it's not even noticeable to kind of um, to kind of move a scene forward, or and and then there are times when you have like what I call lyrical songs, things like like this Watchmen and um, Almost Famous, which is another a great soundtrack that helps put you in the moment with what's going on in the movie. And I think for me, the the music helps to create a sense helps to enhance the tone in particular the 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 opening credits really help to amplify what is happening that times are changing and that we're getting a history of the minutemen and we're getting all of these things again without voiceover without narration we're getting uh, we're getting the the lyrics of Bob Dylan telling us that stuff's Things are moving forward and things are moving on and that there might be hope and there might not be. But there are other moments in the film that do that as well, where the soundtrack, where the songs actually enhance 
the scenes as a whole. Yeah, I think it happens all the time. I mean, mm-hmm. e- each scene, each there's so, so many impactful main scenes that have a song that I cannot separate from the scene. Just like I said, I cannot separate the voice of Rorschach from that character. You know, when comedian is is being murdered, unforgettable is playing, and it's just yeah, it's just tragic. It is unforgettable. And then <laughs> right, it is. And then the sound of silence during that funeral scene i mean it is as soon as the notes start it's just like it 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 enhances the mood it puts you in the headspace to kind of take in a funeral and and realize what the characters are feeling in that moment and of course we have to briefly mention this but the one that everybody seems to hate is the use of the song hallelujah for the sex scene between Lori and dan right and So I got to ask you guys, where are you on that? Do you hate it? Just yes or no? Uh, I will go first. No. I mean, because... (laughs) I don't either, John, so you're not alone. The cognitive dissonance that you have to have with not even just comic book movies, but movies in general, is you, you have to have that separation or it will drive you crazy in a lot of things. So with this, like, I don't mind it at all. I still love that song. When I hear that song, that is not a scene that I think of at all. So it does not take away from the scene. So no, it, it is fine. I will. <laughs> <laughs> one of us, one of us. <laughs> so sex scenes for me are just not, I, I, I just don't like it's It's an uncomfortable thing for me to watch anyway, but I love the song. And like you, John, I can separate that. I'm not going to listen to that song in the future and think of that scene. Um, so I don't think it bothered me. I think tonally it fits with every other song that's used in the scenes that they're connected to. Not not to say, oh, yeah, hallelujah. You know, I don't think it's doing that. But I think you mentioned that dissonance that that comes from that. It's, you know, in the world of design, sometimes you create almost opposites. or um, and, and this happens in films a lot where you have this, you have like a, a happy song being played over just a violent scene. Right. And it, it creates levity. It creates a different kind of digestion. And I think for maybe for, for a lot of, for, for some people having an intimate scene like that, something that's very, um, just very, just, I don't know how you describe it. Just very intimate. Graphic. And you have a song like that graphic. Okay. Yeah. Then, to have a song like that that is connected with something else or connected with another person's um, psyche in some way, you you can get some backlash for that. But to me, I think it was consistent with the rest of the movie in I, terms of how the music was used. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly, exactly. And that's that's my piece on it is I feel like it was consistent with the tone of the way that music was used throughout the movie and with the tone of everything leading up to that scene of intimacy between those two characters the way in which they start and then stop in the house and then they go on this adventure and it's they're all ramped up and it's almost it's almost taken to a surrealistic type level mm-hmm. and then i mean and especially so when the climax happens and the flames burst out of the back of the the ship and i mean right. then at that point you have to realize like okay i'm not supposed to take this seriously like obviously Zack Snyder's not taking this seriously and 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 I can embrace it, and then I, mm-hmm. I I watch it as a much different type of scene, and so yeah, it's right. on this rewatch, it didn't bother me near as much, and I had to actually reflect for a second and go, uh oh, something wrong with me because <laughs> I'm supposed to hate this scene, and I've been actually trashing it. Now I'm not feeling that way, but yeah, yeah overall, man, I just I really love this soundtrack. Um, you know, it's one that I could pop in and listen to because I like all the songs mm-hmm. outside of the movie, and it's good stuff. Right, right. Well, do you guys have anything else to add? If not, um, I'll go ahead and 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 land the uh, land Alki. John, <laughs> do you have something? Uh, yeah, one thing that I would recommend to your listeners. So, if you are wanting to pick up a copy of Watchmen, which I encourage you to do, uh, in two thousand two, I want to say, I think around there, they came out with the Watchmen, the uh, Ultimate Edition. It is a hardcover. It is a slipcase graphic novel. Not only does it incorporate all of the 12 issues, 
but it has it. It is a larger format. The pages are thicker. They are matte finish. They have digital recoloring on top of what Dave Gibbons originally did, but it also has like 30 pages of script notes, of backstory, of character profiles. And there is one page in particular, uh, and I, I would get it, but this is an audio medium, so it would not matter, um, <laughs> where there is a page of script notes that is talking about the first panel on the first page of issue one. So when you can go into that and look at the attention to detail that Alan Moore had when he wanted to tell the story. I'm a huge behind the scenes uh, fan. If there's a DVD extra with that, I watch it. So if you can, and I mean, it is a little bit expensive, like 75 bucks, uh, which is steep for a lot of people. And I totally understand that it is a hardcover slipcase, beautiful art piece. It is not just a book. It is not just a comic book. It is art. So I encourage people if they're going to pick it up, try and spring for that. I, I think you would really enjoy it. Well, thanks, John. So in addition to that recommendation, John, um, where can people find you on social media if they want to connect with you or the podcast or anything that, um, that you have to offer your love for comics, your love for Superman specifically, you know, absolutely any of that where, where can people, where can people find you? Yeah. Uh, so I am really easy. Like I said, on the top of the show, I like brand synergy. So you can find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at about to review. Uh, you can find, yeah, just super easy to find. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, hit me up, uh, about to review at gmail.com. You go on YouTube, uh, find the show, about to interview. That is where I do a lot of interviews. Uh, so like I interviewed Phil Lamar, Peter Serafinowicz, just about some of their current projects. So I like to separate those. Uh, you can still find it in the podcast, but separate on YouTube as well. Uh, I'm going to be in New York Comic Con covering that uh, soon. So, yeah, I, I'm all over the place. I cover festivals, film festivals and conventions all over the place. Geek Girl Con is coming up soon in Seattle. Uh, when do, I, I forget when this drops. So it will be this weekend. This Yeah, it's going to this drops right now. So, yes, it is oh, Geek perfect. Girl Con weekend right now. Yes. So <laughs> definitely go check out Geek Girl Con. It is an amazing convention that celebrates uh, women and their con contributions to the geek culture, women of color, women of all shapes, sizes, body types, incredibly inclusive convention. I encourage people to check it out. Uh, so I will be there all weekend. But yeah, just follow me on social media. I'm all over the place, and I, I encourage discussion. Thanks, John. Aaron, what about you? I just want to echo John's interview YouTube channel that he's been putting together is a great spot John is one of my favorite interviewers. I don't just say that because he's on the show right now. I've said that plenty of times when he when it wasn't to his face. Um, but I, I really do enjoy his interviews. It's inspiring to me. Um, he's probably the guy I'm going to go to to get tips when Feelin' Film starts doing director interviews as well. So check him out. Anytime. Listen to what he, he has to say. He asks great questions, and he's really good at that. So I highly recommend checking out his, his YouTube feed as well. For us, Patrick... If you'd like to talk to me further, you can always find me all over the web at Aaron L. White, A-A-R-O-N-E-L-W-H-I-T-E, and also tweeting from Feelin' Film, at Feelin' Film. I am getting excited because the next two weeks, Patrick, are Blade Runner. Blade Runner, Blade Runner, <laughs> and Blade Runner, and Blade Runner, and there's more Blade Runner. We are not going to be talking about anything but Blade Runner. So, it is here, it is time, and I am so, so jacked for this. Um, you know, most of my fears have kind of washed away I, any nervousness i had has gone now that the initial reactions for blade runner 2049 have come out i was excited i'm convinced it's going to be amazing and i'm ready 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 for it uh, i'll be seeing blade runner the final cut in our best theater in seattle here in the next day or two so i'm super excited about that because i've never seen it on the big screen it is a top 10 all-time movie for me and i am just so ready also this episode is only here because our patrons voted for this episode and chose this movie for us to cover so please do check out our patreon patreon.com slash film we are looking to upgrade equipment we are looking to get equipment so that we can start doing interviews things like that and all of that happens because of the amazing support of listeners like you so if you have a couple bucks that you want to chip in a month get some awesome bonus content in the process and help us out that's a place you can do that if you are so inclined. Also, lastly, the Facebook group. 
as John just said, he loves discussion. We love discussion. Talking with each other is the best part of community and being film lovers, being comic book lovers. So the Feelin' Film Facebook group, John's in that. If you want to come talk to him there, mm-hmm. come join it. You can find links all over the place in the show notes, on our website, etc. And we would love to have you and your voice there as well. You can find me at the at the big three. I'm at Shoeless Patch on uh, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, S-H-O-E-L-E-S-S. P-A-T-C-H. I also have a website, thisispatch.com. And uh, as I've mentioned before, I've got some new written content that uh, explores some of uh, the films that we've covered and uh, my faith connection to those. So if you want to check those out, if you're interested in that, you can uh, check out the first few that I've been putting up there. I try to get to them probably once uh, a week, one every week or two. And uh, I'm, I'm enjoying doing that. Uh, it's kind of getting some writing under my belt. But you can also find uh, more about the show at feelinfilm.com and uh, other writing that is uh, a lot better than mine with our other contributors like Steve Clifton and Don. Those guys have a lot of great stuff out there. Uh, Aaron's been doing some some recent uh, columns for us, some recent reviews with some films that he's been seeing. So check those out. And you can also find past episodes and all that good stuff. But uh, in the meantime, thank you guys so much for all you do to uh, support the show, listening being the number one thing. And um, we just appreciate all that you guys uh, do for us. So until next time, as we always say, stay positive. And keep feeling film. <laughs>